Hi there, and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, win-win. We all do better when we work together. The Prime Minister is heading home from Mexico City, insisting U.S. protectionist vibes aren't a threat. Canada's former ambassador to the U.S., David McNaughton, is here to weigh in. Then, a new nexus deal doesn't go far enough, according to Congressman Brian Higgins. He'll be here to tell us why. Then, Doug Ford gives Justin Trudeau's health funding conditions a thumbs up. Everyone has to be accountable. I always say there's one taxpayer. The Ontario Premier is just the latest to signal he's willing to make a move to make a deal. Our front bench panel will be here to talk about the Premier's pivot coming up. And U.S. travel chaos. A computer system outage grounded flights across the U.S. this morning, halting North American travel. We're live at Canada's busiest airport with the latest on what it means for you. Let's start, though, with a wrap on the North American Leaders' Summit, the first major international meeting for Prime Minister Justin Trudeau of 2023. His message during this summit to both Mexico and the U.S., we're better together than apart. That did not stop the Prime Minister, though, from getting questions about how he will field U.S. protectionism. As politicians, you know, we, will, uh, we will put the emphasis in different places depending on uh, where and to whom we are speaking. But the fundamental truths that we all do better when we work together and that our own citizens do better when we work together is something that has become ever more clear uh, over the past years and uh, has certainly been at the center of our discussions today. The Prime Minister just made those comments in Mexico City. Let's get reaction from David McNaughton now. He's the former uh, Canadian ambassador to the U.S. Hi, Mr. McNaughton. Good to have you with us this evening. Good to be here. I appreciate you making the time. I remember speaking to you so frequently during the CUSMA or the new NAFTA negotiations uh, in which the big fear was at the time U.S. protectionism. Are you surprised at all that it's still a worry for Canada? No, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, this is a, a thing that, you know, when we, when we signed the deal, I remember saying at the time uh, that this doesn't mean we can go to sleep, that we can relax. Um, I think that happened a little bit uh, before Trump came to power, that we weren't paying enough attention to uh, the cross-border alliances with business and with labor and with other uh, with governors and other th other people who had influence in Washington. Um, and so, you know, the U.S. protectionism is there. It's going to continue to be there. And we're going to have to work hard to make sure that the foundation uh, of the, the Kuzma deal that is up for review in 2026 uh, remains vibrant and, and protects Canadian business uh, you know, to, to access the U.S. market. But I don't think anybody should have any illusions that U.S. protectionism um, is there. And I think even, you know, what is alarming to me is that it used to be that that was really mostly in the, in the Democratic Party. And what you're seeing now is isolationism and protectionism within the Republican Party, which I think is, is truly worrisome. Um, but I think, I think you know, the, the, the last couple of days meetings have been really useful. I think the fact that, that uh, President Biden is going to come to Canada is useful. 
and I think the one thing that you, have, you know what what's happened in the last year and a half is that um, you know Biden has really done a good job of mobilizing and bringing together allies, not just you know Canada and Japan and Australia and and people like, but the, but the European coalition, uh, not just NATO, but 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 the, all of the European countries. Um, that have come together in opposition to the, you know, the, the Russian invasion has been, right. you know, truly remarkable. And I, Trump never understood the word ally. It just wasn't in his vocabulary. Do, do you think that the, uh, the, the almost the case study, for, for lack of a better term, of how everyone has come together around the, the war against Ukraine uh, it, it, it has endeared itself, I guess, to the idea of better together versus apart, even in an economic sense? Or are you worried about domestic politics in the U.S. trumping that? It, 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 domestic politics is always a factor. I think that what, what we uh, have to realize is that, you know, we are far more dependent on the U.S. market than they are on our market. And therefore, we have to work even harder to show the Americans where it is that we are an important market for them, where um, you know we're an important element of their security, whether that be on energy or whether that be on critical minerals or you know uh, helping protect the Arctic uh, or being a, a member of, of NATO. So, so I think you know we always want to talk about the trade issues when you know it's the first thing that comes out of our mouths. The Americans always want to talk about military and, and defense uh, and security, and we have to realize that, uh, you know, given what's happened in the world in the last year, um, we just need to be even more sensitive to that. And and I think it can stand us in good stead. I mean, I think that the notion of Canada being an important part of U.S. security, not just uh defense security, but economic security is going to be an important thing that we need to emphasize. Uh, I just have about a minute left, uh, Mr. McNaughton, but I, I do want to ask you, if you were still ambassador in this vein, how concerned would you be about the potential impact of the in Inflation Reduction Act? Well, the Inflation Reduction Act you know, has some elements to, I mean, I, we, you know, we escaped the electric vehicle uh, part of that, but there are some incentives in there that are truly, um, you know, uh, investment decision altering, um, and I think we've got to be aware of that. And where we think that we've got a potential competitive advantage, we need to match those kinds of incentives because if we don't, um, the money will flow to where uh, the incentives are. And there's, you know, it's a big. You know, it's a you know over a trillion dollars worth of funding, and some of it has you know market altering impacts, and we got to be really sensitive to that. Okay, Mr. McNaughton, I'll leave it there. Thanks very much for your insights this evening. Appreciate them. No problem at all. Thank you, David McNaughton, was Canada's ambassador to the U.S. Another tangible outcome from the summit in Mexico City was an agreement reached between the United States and Canada around nexus. I want to get some reaction to the substance of that agreement from Congressman Brian Higgins. He's the Democratic congressman representing New York's 26th congressional district. He's also the co-chair of the Canada-U.S. Interparliamentary Group. Mr. Higgins, great pleasure to have you on the program this evening. 
good to be with you. Okay, so I, I want to make sure our viewers understand what was reached basically is an interim agreement. Uh, that allows for people who need to apply to both U.S. and Canadian border agents to do so through reopened offices in Canada, but then talk to U.S. agents at airports, not in the enrollment offices in Canada. Uh, my, uh, my understanding from a statement you released is you, you, you are hoping that it goes further. Yeah, I mean, these uh, interviews could take place online. Uh, that's perfectly reasonable. We have a 500-day backlog right now. Uh, you know, the whole inducement to travel is ease of travel. And the Nexus program has been very, very successful for both U.S. and Canadian citizens to expedite uh, the uh, review of, of cars that are uh, passing over our land ports of entry. So any way that we can make that easier for people to obtain uh, those passes, uh, the better it is for both the United States and Canada. The Canadian perspective put forth by the federal government here, uh, through the words actually of Canada's current ambassador to the U.S., is that the U.S. was, was holding Canada hostage in, in the discussions around whether Nexus could go forth because the U.S. wanted its border agencies basically to uh, have the same privileges that border agents in airports do. So, so they would be essentially immune from Canadian prosecution. Do, do you think that the, the U.S. government... Uh, should back away from from the desire to see that in order to get a more permanent agreement with Canada on Nexus? No, I think we have to keep talking toward the goal of making this as efficient as possible. There are going to be interests uh, that each country has individually, but our mutual interest should be to promote uh, the movement of goods and services between the United States and Canada. Uh, Canada is a country of 38 million people. Uh, America is a country of 230 million people. Uh, we are better when we're working together. We are better when there are no uh, unnecessarily, unnecessary delays uh, at these land ports of entry. Uh, and we should keep working toward the goal of making this program work for the people that it was intended to benefit and the economies it was intended to benefit. And that was both, that's both the United States and Canada. Uh, North America is about 500 million people. It is a huge marketplace. Uh, Canada's uh, economy is a little less than $2 trillion. American, America's economy is about $24 trillion. Uh, we should be doing everything that we can to uh, promote the economic integration uh, and uh, promoting life quality between the United States and Canada. So these, this, is a, this is a program that was set up with a bunch of bureaucratic rules. I think getting through them uh, toward the goal of making this program work better, uh, it's ridiculous that you have to wait 500 days for, for a Nexus pass. Uh, we should be able to move that much right. more quickly, finding ways that are mutually beneficial. And Congressman, no disagreement from, from me or I think any Canadians in that queue li listening tonight on that, nor on the significance and, and importance of the relationship between our two countries and, and how the free flow of people and goods uh, should persist. But back to the, the original question I asked you, um, are you sympathetic with the Canadian position that granting U.S. border guards immunity essentially from Canadian laws uh, at, uh, at enrollment centers in Canada is unreasonable? No, I don't think it's unreasonable. I think that, you know, we have a mutual 
uh, objective, and that is to, to make this work much more efficiently. I think that we should go further. We should be able to do these interviews. We're talking about interviews of prospective uh, Nexus applicants. Uh, they should be able to do that online. Uh, we should not have this backlog, and I think you know there's always going to be uh, differing opinions about uh, who should be permitted or allowed to do what, and who should be granted immunity. But I think we, as opposed to getting stuck on those issues, I think we should look beyond the horizon as to how we can do this in, in a much more efficient way. And I think as we are communicating right now virtually, you should be able to do that uh, in order to uh, get your Nexus card, to do your interviews. Uh, for both for the satisfaction of the Canadian uh, Customs and Border uh, uh, Protection uh, Agency and also to the, uh, the Customs and Border Agency in the United States. Okay, I'll leave it there. I'm out of time. Mr. Higgins, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. That's Congressman Brian Higgins. And stay tuned because we're going to dig into what happened during that summit in Mexico City with the front bench. Up tonight, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier and party insider strategist Carlene Varian, Corey Tonike, and Melanie Riche. That's just ahead. Up next, though, how a computer outage grounded flights right across the United States. It's travel chaos deja vu. An outage of the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration's notice to air missions system led to massive cancellations and delays. That's the part of the computer system for the FAA that tells pilots when there's a problem on the runway or in the air. All in all, more than 2,300 flights in and out of the U.S. were canceled, more than 7,000 delayed. Normal air traffic operations did eventually resume slowly, but as you can imagine, that backlog was not pretty. CTV News' Richard Madden has more for us on it all. Yeah, Vashi, it's been a bit of a mess at airports all across the country, including here at Reagan National, just outside of Washington, D.C. This morning, of course, as we know, the FAA put out that alert that what they call it their notice-to-air missions uh, system was down, and that's essentially a virtual bulletin board that alerts pilots for closed runways, equipment outages, and other hazards along the flight route. As a result, flights were cancelled or delayed all across the country, including here, and you can still see the ramifications on the departure board. Lots of red text here showing flights are either cancelled or delayed everywhere from Asheville all the way to West Palm Beach. Actually, a couple flights to Toronto delayed as well. So uh, the domino effect really rippling across the system at airports across the country. What caused this is unclear. The White House saying this wasn't a cyber attack. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg says he wants to look into it to avoid this kind of problem from happening again. Because once you start grounding planes, that really creates a ripple effect uh, just everywhere. D.C., as you know, is a, is a hub for American Airlines. A lot of its planes are still grounded on the tarmac, but flights are slowly returning, uh, but it's going to take a long time for this to work its way through the system. As for passengers, well, they're fairly frustrated because the last few months uh, airline travel across the country has been uh, problematic. We remember that debacle with Southwest Airlines over the holidays where flights were cancelled, scrap passengers were stuck, uh, wondering how they're going to get home, and that lasted about a week. The difference this time is that it's the airline regulator, the FAA, that caused the flights to be paused 
uh, at airports. And we spoke to several passengers this morning, many trying to get home to Indianapolis, to Dallas, to Cleveland, to Los Angeles. Uh, one passenger was quite concerned because he was flying to Miami. He wasn't sure if he was going to get his tea time at 1 o'clock. So our hearts go out to him. But that kind of illustrates that people are just taking this in stride. They've been used to airline delays and cancellations uh, for several months, particularly after post-pandemic when airline travel went from basically nothing to the accelerating hitting the floor. So uh, this is another issue that the airlines are having to deal with. But ultimately, you talk to a lot of passengers, they feel that their confidence in the airline sector has been shaken, especially over the past few months with delays and cancellations, and now this uh, situation with the FAA. So as regulators and politicians investigate what went wrong, the bottom line is that this glitch by the FAA may have lasted about an hour or two, but it's going to take a whole lot longer for this to be resolved perhaps a day, perhaps several days, but a lot of red text here showing that airlines and the flights just simply aren't flying on time. CTV's Richard Madden in Washington for us. Now let's check in on the Canadian impact. Joining me is CTV News' Mike Walker from Toronto Pearson International Airport. Hi, Mike. Uh, Richard just told us how things played out uh, south of the border. How did they play out in Toronto and other airports in Canada? Well, Vassy, it's been a day full of delays. In fact, there are still several delays at this hour. I'm looking at the departures board right now, and there are dozens of flight delays to destinations right across the United States. It's the ripple effect of what happened this morning. And the biggest impact here at Pearson International Airport was felt between 6 and 9 a.m. The Greater Toronto Airport's authority reporting that 34% of departures were impacted by this ground order and system outage and again that ripple effect is still being felt at this hour and into the evening anyone traveling to the u.s is being told to uh, check their flight status before coming to the airport uh, this evening or if they're coming to pick someone up who's inbound from the united states as well so a day full of delays at this point and I know you've been speaking with passengers. Uh, Richard was saying in the U.S. The, uh, at the Reagan Airport, they were taking it in stride, but overall their confidence in the system is, is not very high right now. Are you sensing the same thing among Canadian passengers? Yeah, we're, we're hearing a similar reaction from uh, passengers today. Many um, were happy that the delay was only a couple of hours and they weren't stranded for another day or two. However, a lot of people who were flying out of Pearson Airport to the U.S., this morning uh, didn't have direct flight so their concern was whether or not they'd be able to make their connecting flight to their final destination this afternoon uh, flights from the u.s started arriving here at at pearson airport we were speaking with a couple of exhausted travelers uh, they told us they were actually on board their flights when this outage and ground order all went down and they had to get off the plane and had to wait uh, a couple of hours before they were able to board and make their way back here uh, and, but the one thing we kept hearing from people is this was a bit more of a positive experience in the fact that it was only a delay for a couple of hours and that they were able to make it to their destination today instead of being stranded for another day or two or possibly longer. Yeah, it's all relative, I guess. Thanks a lot, Mike.
That's CTV News's Mike Walker at Pearson Airport just outside of Toronto. We called it travel chaos deja vu for a reason. As Mike alluded to just a few weeks ago, right over Christmas, many Canadian passengers, thousands of them in fact, endured some really tough times traveling both by air and by train. Tomorrow, the Transport Committee meets here on Parliament Hill to start their investigation into what went wrong there. Let's bring in CTV News's Annie Bergeron-Oliver to find out more on what we can expect from that committee. Hi, Annie. Good Hi. to see you. Uh, tell us a little bit about who will be appearing before it because it's kind of a stacked list. It's a stacked list and it really is going to be a marathon session. There's about five <laughs> hours of testimony oh tomorrow. Boy. So be prepared, get your popcorn <laughs> and try not to have too much PTSD if you were one of those travelers who was stranded. So we're going to have Air Canada, the executives, the president of Air Canada will not be there. Instead, it's a vice president. Sunwing Airlines as well will have a president. WestJet, a number of vice presidents. You're going to have the um, representatives from the airport authorities, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver. Right. Then the second half, you're going to have Algaba, the transport minister, he'll be up for one hour. You're also going to have a number of departmental officials from the Department of Transport. And finally, you're going to have the Canadian Transportation Agency. So about five hours of testimony all in total tomorrow. So it's going to be a very busy day and a lot of people to pack into that time. These committees are often, like, look, they're fact-finding, but they're also partisan sniping. I don't know, for, for, for lack of a better word. The minister is certainly going to be on the hot seat tomorrow, and the opposition members have already signaled that. Yes. The minister, too, though, uh, has signaled that he's focused on the airlines. Yeah, and the one thing that this committee does have is it was called by the Opposition United. So we're starting this committee with the Opposition United that right. something needs to change. And they are going to have very pointed questions to the minister, and I think he's going to be the person in the hot seat the most. People want answers. The opposition want accountability. They want to know what did the minister know, when did he know, what kind of conversations did he have with these airlines and the executives, and is there anything else that he could have done to maybe change some of the things that happened. But I think more than that, people want to know what is there that the government can do to make sure that this doesn't happen again because there were issues in the summer and we are still seeing delays and a big part of it comes down to staffing levels. Uh, we talked to somebody earlier who had a little bit of insight into what tomorrow will look like. They said you can expect that the airlines will provide some type of operational explanation for what happened. They're going to say that staffing played a big role because they still don't have enough staff and also played into weather and bad conditions. So we're seeing staffing issues. That was a problem. The minister talked about how the airlines are getting there. They're working to get more people but that still isn't the case so I think the minister is really going to be on the hot seat here and we, we, like I said we've already heard him turn his attention to the airlines I want to play a little clip of what he had to say but again it's not just the rules is we need airlines to ensure that they uh, they make good decisions to keep passengers rights uh, at the center of their operation and this is going to continue to be an ongoing discussion with the airlines so, so my guess for Canadians watching the big question about the work of this committee and what they're going to hear tomorrow is, so what? Like, what potentially happens after they hear from everybody and anybody? Is, is there some accountability, potential accountability? Exactly. And what are the potential repercussions? There is a passenger's bill of rights, but a lot of experts are saying, look, this is not strong enough. And if you just look at the fact that there are about 30,000 complaints in the backlog and that it's estimated it'll take a complaint two years to get through the system, analysts are saying, look, this is not strong enough. And the opposition has said that too, that there needs to be a stronger bill of rights. There needs to be some type of accountability so that the airlines face much stronger penalties if they do strand people like they did in with Sunwing in Mexico, stranding Canadians who had no way to get home for Christmas, didn't know what was happening because the communication wasn't there. And so that's why this committee is also looking at the Passengers' Bill of Rights and how can that be strengthened.
Okay, lots to dig into tomorrow. Thanks, Annie. Thank Annie you. Bergeron Oliver. Stay with us here on Power Play tonight. Next up, the front bench will dig into Doug Ford's big health care pivot. First, though, the list. That's next. Welcome back to Power Play on this Wednesday evening. Time for The List, what's happening in politics today. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is thanking Canada and the Prime Minister for a big military purchase, tweeting out, your true leadership in standing for democracy and human rights has been vividly proven again. Thank you for helping us to protect our sky. National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System procured for us by Canada will be a strong shield for our cities and citizens. Prime Minister Trudeau announced Canada will buy that American-made missile defense system for about $400 million after his meeting with President Joe Biden in Mexico City just this week. Ontario Premier Doug Ford says his government disagrees with claims made in a proposed class action lawsuit that alleges gross negligence from the province in preventing COVID-19 deaths in long-term care homes. We gave it our all, 1,000%. And uh, sure, did we have some challenges? Um, sure we did, like the whole world did. Uh, but did we perform extremely well throughout the pandemic? Uh, not we. When I say we, I'm not talking myself. I'm talking all of Ontario. We were phenomenal. The province filed a notice of appeal on the decision to certify the lawsuit. Seniors in long-term care were, of course, among the hardest hit during the pandemic, with nearly 4,000 of them dying in Ontario before April of 2021. South of the border, U.S. President Joe Biden is facing an investigation over classified documents reportedly located at his think tank's offices. But I don't know what's in the documents. I've, my lawyers have not suggest that I ask what documents they were. I've turned over the boxes. They've turned over the boxes to the archives, and we're cooperating fully. The Department of Justice is reviewing all of it, and CNN has reported that the documents do include intelligence memos and briefing documents on topics including Ukraine, Iran, and the U.K. Republicans who control the U.S. House are pledging to investigate. And a very grim climate record reached. Ocean temperatures hit the highest recorded temperatures in 2022. That comes from a study in Advances in Atmospheric Sciences. The study goes on to warn that five of the hottest years on record have been seen in the past six years. Ocean temperatures are key climate change markers because they absorb so much of the world's heat. And the Japanese Prime Minister is set to arrive in Canada tonight. Kishida Fumio will meet with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tomorrow. The meeting is uh, supposed to focus on G7 priorities, among those trade, and comes just after the long-awaited release of Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy, which aims to expand trade with Japan. Up next on Power Play, the front bench and news from Premier Doug Ford that he's willing to accept the Prime Minister's strings attached to new health care money. Are more premiers set to follow suit? That's what the front bench, there they are. They're set to weigh in on in just a moment. Stay with us. Yes, you know, everyone has to be accountable. I always say there's one taxpayer, no matter if it's municipal, federal, or provincial, uh, there's one person that's paying the taxes. 
and uh, there always has to be accountability. So that's that's the least of our issues. Uh, do we want a little bit of flexibility? Um, yeah, and I think they're they're willing to do that because sometimes you, you need to shift funds as long as it's transparent and people can see it and, and uh, the feds can see it in the province. Um, we're we're going to get there. I'm, I'm really confident we're going to get there. Ontario Premier Doug Ford there responding to a question on what he's willing to do for more health care money from the feds. Premier Ford appears to be part of a growing list of premiers who are now indicating that they are not opposed to some strings attached to that money. Has the united front from the provinces or among them started to crack? Let's dig into that with our front bench this evening. Former Chief of Staff to Jim Carr, Carlene Varian is here. Carlene's an Associate Vice President with Summa Strategies now. Former Communications Director to Stephen Harper, Corey tonight rather is here as well. He most recently ran. Uh, he was the campaign manager for the Ontario PC Party in the last provincial election, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Rubicon Strategy. Former communications director to Jagmeet Singh, Melanie Riche is here as well. She now works at Earnscliffe Strategies and Ottawa Bureau Chief for CTV News. Joyce Napier is right next to me. Nice to see everybody tonight. Thank you for making the time, Corey. I, I got to start with you. Is our Premier Ford's comments tonight a sign that the collective armor or the collective position of the provinces is is kind of coming to its natural end? Well, I think it's it's adjusting a bit as uh, conversations with the federal government uh, become a, a little bit more real and a little bit more detailed. Uh, the things that the the federal government have been talking about in terms of strings attached align really closely, at least in the case of Ontario, with the spending priorities for health care that they've already uh, committed to. So uh, areas like long-term care, home care, uh, uh, more money for, for nurses and, and uh, uh, PSWs. Uh, so when, when those are the things that, that the federal government are identifying as, as uh, priority areas and the strings they want to attach, and those are the same areas that you're, you're already indicating that you're going to spend money on anyway, uh, it's pretty easy to say yes to that. The other area is around uh, reporting metrics, and i got to say that one of the frustrations, I think, for, for uh, the Ford government, but also many other provinces, is, is uh, not as, as much information coming out of their own health care systems around wait times and other metrics as they would like to see themselves. And so uh, having the federal government pushing and uh, that as a requirement uh, you know, is, is helpful to the system as a whole, and uh, another thing that I think is very easy to say yes to. Uh, Carlene, every, everything Corey's saying kind of seems to make sense, right? Like it doesn't yeah. seem like the stuff the feds have been pushing is that way out of line with what provinces were looking for. So why has it taken so many months then to get to the position we're in tonight where we can say, hey, it looks like there, there might be some agreement? I think that it has taken some of the provinces a while to see that they were not necessarily going to win in the court of public opinion on this issue. Um, the PM, the Prime Minister, has personally held this really strong line um, on being able to get metrics and data to show value for money in the healthcare system for six or seven months now. Um, I don't think it's always been easy to stick to that position, either publicly or in the negotiating room, um, but he has and his intergovernmental affairs minister have. And I, I think what we're starting to see now is, is frankly what the Liberals have probably expected and hoped uh, would be the case all along, is that you start to be able to kind of uh, 
flick off one province at a time, um, and eventually there just becomes this critical mass and uh, a deal happens. Do, do you think that's what ends up happening here, Melanie? Does it kind of, and, and we've seen this in other instances, right? But like in other deals that they've negotiated, even healthcare in the past, where it formally went province by province, does it look like that's the path they're headed on here? Yeah, it definitely looks like that's what's happening based on the comments that are coming from every premier so far. Um, you asked earlier whether it looked like it was crumbling between the premiers. Uh, I, I don't know that it's crumbling between the premiers, but it definitely seems like they are starting to feel the pressure from the people that they represent that something needs to happen. I will say where I disagree is I think the Prime Minister may have played it well so far that this is falling on the premiers, but I think that's going to change very quickly if things aren't done soon. I think people are starting to see that they're not able to get the care that they need. They're staying at home because they're terrified oh, yeah. about either their babies getting sick or not being able to get the care if they do get sick. Um, so I think the longer that happens, I think the Prime Minister is going to start wearing it too, so I think it needs to happen quickly. And, and I always, I, I think a lot of Canadians, Joyce, did understand the Prime Minister's position. The harder part to understand was why, like, you couldn't just meet to try, especially when it feels like the, the crisis is so tangible right now. Like, it's, it's, it's not this sort of medium time where everybody's like, okay, our system is good. Like, we, I, I, I'm petrified to bring my kid to a hospital right now, right? So it did, that part did confuse me, but now it seems like, at least strategically speaking, like everyone's been saying, things are progressing. Well, and, and, and we should all be happy about that because up until a few weeks ago, you guys remember, the premiers were furious. Uh, they said the prime minister doesn't want to meet with us. So this is, I'm, I'm going to be cautiously optimistic because the devil is in the details. So who's going to decide what? Uh, is it going to be a lump sum? I mean, the provinces want the increase of transfers to go from 22 to 35%. Um, it's a $28 billion absolutely. jump a Yeah, year. well, yeah. you know, it costs what it costs. Uh, we know that our, our health care system is ailing. And I think to your point, Melanie, I think all politicians, Premier and the Prime Minister, are afraid to get blamed for this because we heard just this week this woman in uh, Nova Scotia yeah. dying in the emergency room while she waited for care. So these, these stories are going to multiply sadly and politically they're all going to pay the price. So now they're going to behave, which is at least good for all of us. But the problem is who's going to decide how much money is going to go into long-term care, how much money is health, is, is mental health, how much is this, I how much is that? I think the provinces want to be so, able to decide okay, that. Good. That's a great question. And, and, yeah. and the provinces have to decide that because the federal government, with all its knowledge, does not have that knowledge. So we have to wait and see how is this going to roll out yeah. and you know where are these strings and how attached are they going to be? I actually think that's a really good point about the devil being in the details because not just because of the different folders that the money could go in but because of this like looming political discussion around how much of the system do you privatize and it depends on what what province you're in. I actually want to play a clip, a couple of clips from premiers we've had on the program this week uh, who are talking about, in the same vein as Doug Ford about being able to move forward and then uh, Corey I'll, I'll go back to you on that question of privatization. Have a listen. Look, I mean, I don't believe that I have to sit and wait for the federal government to make up its mind. We, as you know, since I got elected, I believe that my job is to do what's right for Albertans and for us to be exercising our full area of authority. The Prime Minister have a willing partner in Nova Scotia and I would say most other provinces as well. And it's not about us not wanting to be held accountable. I've, I've, I've looked the, the federal government in the eye and said, look, we want, we're, we're held accountable every single day. 
So, Corey, my question is this, and that is every province obviously has, I mean, look, the private sector exists in the public health care system already. That's, that's a fact. Widely. Every province is looking at different ways. Yeah, and every province is looking at uh, different stories. Some provinces are looking at expanding that role in different ways. My question is whether or not you see the federal government trying to insert themselves vis-a-vis -vis the, the threat of this money into that debate. I don't think there's a big push on the part of provinces for uh, for fundamental changes to the Canada Health Act, at least not in the way that I think uh, most people conceive of them uh, around private uh, uh, health care, which, which I think what, what concerns some people in, in, in the system and what would certainly get the federal government uh, up in arms is if it was an attack on single payer. Uh, private delivery of health care is extremely routine. Uh, across the entire country, and uh, rabid right wingers like Kathleen Wynne, uh, you know, uh, brought a lot more of it into the Ontario uh, system. So, like, I, I don't think there's any issue around <laughs> those kinds of issues. Uh, it, it's and, and there's a there's a lot of support from uh, Ontarians and Canadians around private delivery. So this is like a a uh, I don't know the Schuldice Clinic for those uh, in Ontario who are familiar with that. It's been operating for you know 50 years plus. Uh, that, that does uh, 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 private surgical services, but under the one single-payer public system. So I think you're going to see more of that uh, regardless, and that's been going on for 25 years and it's going to continue to go on. Where I think people get concerned is uh, 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 amongst a lot of voters, like a strong majority of voters, is around an attack on the single-payer portion. Um, uh, meaning that you know it's all covered under under your provincial health plan. So right. uh, I don't I don't you know there's maybe uh, Danielle Smith hinting a little bit about yeah, wanting to move say, towards that, but but she's got about 15 minutes left in her mandate. So how much of that she'll actually be able to uh, accomplish in in the that, the dying hours of that administration? I don't know, but it's not a we lot. We don't know that for sure, but I take your point. That election happens in May. I'm well, take you know, a quick prior, I, I'm, I'm not predicting that she's going to lose. Uh, although she would have uh, the election were yeah, today, but, <laughs> uh, but you know, are you actually going to implement it before you, you face I, the electorate? Uh, no. Well, that's the big question, right? Yeah, and that's what she's mused. She's proposed it, but we haven't seen a, an implementation plan yet. And that election does happen uh, in the spring. Like I said, I got to take a quick break. We're back on the other end of that break with the front bench. Though we'll dive into uh, the prime minister's summit in Mexico City. We're back in just a moment. Stay with us. Working with partners and close allies like Canadians and Mexicans actually creates jobs and prosperity uh, for uh, the American middle class, creates opportunities for us all. And that's what this particular gathering has been entirely focused on. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in Mexico City insisting there can be a win-win-win where trade is concerned between the U.S., Mexico and Canada. Let's bring back the front bench to see if, in fact, that's true. Uh, Joyce Napier is here, Carlene Varian, Corey Tonight, and Melanie Richet. Carlene, I'll start with you because despite the message, which was clearly, hey, NAFTA was a good thing, uh, Cosma is an even better thing, uh, he still was fielding, the Prime Minister was still fielding questions about 
protectionism and the message that, that politicians in the U.S. have, including the president, to their domestic audiences. David McNaughton was on, our former ambassador, who said, you can't dismiss it. It's a, it is a worry, it will be a worry, and, it, it, and will be so for a while. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that there are a number of bilateral issues between the, uh, the Canadians and the Americans right now that uh, we're not on on track to get resolved this week at the summit um, and probably have a fair ways to go yet before we will see resolution. But what I thought was most interesting about this week in Mexico was we saw this return to what business as usual can look like in the Northern Hemisphere, um, where leaders can meet at multilateral summits and, and carry on the business of those summits while understanding that there are always going to be remaining issues um, outstanding. And there's one phrase that I heard the Prime Minister use and, and the ministers who are accompanying him a lot, which I thought was sort of my big takeaway from, from the summit, which was that notion of mutually beneficial trading relationships. That's a message that I think the Liberals are really trying to convey and, and emphasize to the Biden administration, which of course um, has some of those protectionist tendencies. Were they successful in, in every front and every forum this week? Probably not. I don't think they expected to be, but I think they advanced the conversation and that's what they were looking for. The feeling I have, Joyce, is that the Biden administration is receptive to that, but not necessarily the American public as a whole. And the Biden administration gets that they have to appeal to the public in the states in order to um, advance their own agenda, right? So I feel like there's a bit of friction there. They also, he also has to appeal to lawmakers uh, in the border uh, uh, towns around there. So it, it is, it's always interesting when you, when you follow these, uh, these trilateral meetings, the three amigos, and, uh, you know, we talk a lot about American protectionism, and we always fail to talk about Canadian protectionism. There's some of that, too. There yeah. is some <laughs> of that, too, and you've got to look at that as well and understand the other side of it. Uh, we want people to invest in our critical minerals. We want people, you know, semiconductors, this is us, this is what we're offering, um, and, and rightly so. That's a smart offer. But we're going to need foreign investors to do that. And foreign investors are probably frightened by the regulations. Uh, Canada is a very heavily regulated country. We have interprovincial, you know, arm wrestling, interprovincially and arm wrestling between the right. federal and the provincial governments. So is it very appealing to investors? Yes, we are a politically very stable country. And we're good people, let's face it. But also, we have our own problems. And those are problems. I mean, you know, we saw that lately, um, you know, with, with, with critical minerals, with, with absolutely everything. So where do, how do we attract those investors? Because that's what we need. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, the, the, the extra layer to the challenges in attracting investors is, and, and I mentioned this during the interview with the former Ambassador McNaughton, is this Inflation Reduction Act and the way in which it changes the, the playing field, really, between our two countries, Melanie. Totally. And we're, we're not able to compete right now. Like the, the federal government is not really meeting anything in comparison. So when, when you have um, a crisis that has gotten to what it is and it almost feels like we're too late to respond to it or maybe not too late to respond to it, but um, not enough is being done to respond to it or the measures that are being done to respond don't actually meet the current inflation that we're dealing with, um, especially as it relates to uh, what obviously New Democrats continue to talk about is greedflation as it relates to food prices, as it relates to um, housing still being up. The measures that are being brought in for inflation are really only being done by the Bank of Canada. The government's not doing anything uh, themselves, and that's not lowering those prices. So um, when you're comparing to the states, uh, we're, we're really not 
meeting uh, right now as it, as it stands. Corey, how big of a challenge from your perspective do the feds have on their hands with the IRA and the investment climate it creates in the U.S.? Well, I just want to make a correction on, on, on our last uh, panelist's uh, comments there. The Inflation Reduction Act is really not about reducing inflation at all. It's, a, it's, it's corporate subsidies uh, to try to bring manufacturing back to the United States. So I, I think those are just two totally different topics uh, in terms of what we're dealing with. Uh, but I would agree there's not a lot being done what, on, that's, on But, but to Melanie's point, that's how it was sold by the Biden administration to yeah, the public. Yeah, but that's, too, not, right? that, that's not why we're talking about it at Three Amigos right now or, you know, what we're dealing with on the industrial policy side of things. I think both with that and also with the chips bill, you're looking at, you know, uh, well over $500 billion worth of, of subsidies for relocation, relocating different kinds of manufacturing uh, back to the United States of America, uh, much of it from Asia. Uh, as a result of uh, you know supply chain interruptions and tensions uh, over uh, Taiwan, uh, you know so the U.S. is deciding as a, a strategic and to implement a strategic industrial policy here, and either we play uh, uh, along with this or we get locked out of any future manufacturing jobs in our markets. So, you know where I think you know irrespective of what party is uh, in government in Ottawa, I think you're going to see a concerted effort along with. With, uh, with provinces that have ongoing manufacturing sectors like Ontario and Quebec, a coordinated approach to try to match those U.S. Uh, subsidies to right. attract uh, manufacturing in key areas. And those key areas are clearly going to be around uh, battery production, EV manufacturing, uh, but also on the resource development side, uh, none of those things happen at all unless we develop things like the Ring of Fire on the critical miner mineral extraction side of things. So I think you're going to see a huge focus on this. Uh, at the end of the day, we either meet those subsidies or we don't get any of those jobs. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it breaks my free market heart uh, to have to say it, but I think that's just the reality. It, the re but the question around the reality, uh, Carlene, is whether the federal government can match, can meet, and if they can't, like, what's the alternative? Well, I mean, I, I don't make, you know, I don't like to be in the business of making budget predictions on, on live TV, but I, I will say I would be shocked if... Uh, Finance Minister Christopher Freeland doesn't table a budget in the House of Commons this spring that contains a lot of measures that will help Canada keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, um, on uh, creating that tax environment and that regulatory environment where Canada can compete with the neighbours to the south and make sure that this is where the investment happened. I think they're feeling a ton of pressure, to Corey's point on that right now. Oh, yeah. I can't, I, there's nobody I talk to around this government right now who isn't feeling that pressure. On that note, I'll leave it. Thank you very much, everyone. Appreciate the discussion tonight. Corey tonight, Melanie Richet, Carlene Varian, and Joyce Napier. On that subject of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and how it potentially might uh, affect Canada. That's today's takeaway. Have a listen to Canada's former ambassador to the U.S., David McNaughton. But there are some incentives in there that are truly, um, you know, uh, investment decision altering. Um, and I think we've got to be aware of that. And where we think that we've got a potential competitive advantage we need to match those kinds of incentives because if we don't, um, the money will flow to where uh, the incentives are. And there's, you know, it's a big, um, you know, it's a, you know, over a trillion dollars worth of funding. And some of it has, you know, market altering impacts. And we've got to be really sensitive to that. 
Canada's former ambassador to the U.S., David McNaughton, there, who helped negotiate the new NAFTA, saying that, yes, there is reason to be concerned about the impact of the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. on Canada. That does it for us tonight on Power Play. I'll turn things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. Have a great evening, and we'll see you back here tomorrow.